0: You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning. Welcome again to Grace Community Church. If you're here for the first time, and I know that several of you are here for the first time, we just want to extend a special Welcome to you. My name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder here at Grace. And we're so glad that you have chosen to worship with us this morning. A couple of things I just want to mention. Uh, One, it's already been mentioned Tuesday evening at Campbell Street Fair. David Calvert needs potato cookers. Is that right, David? So if you're willing to help do one of the big, uh, the best French fries in three counties. And that includes Wake County, all right. Fresh French fries help cook those for students on Tuesday night at Campbell. Then see David sometime between uh, the services, and then also tomorrow night at our home in Fukuoka Arena, um, Joy Vonk, one of our missionaries, who's a PA but serving uh, in in Houston. She's about to move to Raleigh. We're so grateful for that. Serving missionaries who are coming off the field. We'll be speaking about anyone who is uh, in the medical field, in any aspect of the medical field, and wants to do missions. And look, if you never plan to do missions, but you're a pharmacist, or you're uh, a PA, or a PT, a physical therapist, um, a doctor, med student, you want to be there. So, tomorrow night at 7 o'clock in our home in Fuquay Arena, um, we'll make that available, that address available to you. If you are interested so as we begin this time in our time in the word this morning I want to ask a few questions first of all are you interested in politics at all so we're talking about we're gonna be preaching I'm gonna be preaching from the word we're gonna be looking carefully at Genesis 11 1 through 9 but I are you interested in politics at all? And if so, would you say you're more interested in state, local, national, or international politics? And I understand there'll be variations uh, to this answer, but are you politically minded or not? Second, would you say that you are patriotic? If you're not a, a citizen of this nation, are you, do you have a special place in your heart for your land back home? Third, do you think Christians should be involved in politics? And if so, do you think there are biblical directives that move political involvement from the privileged slash responsible category to the obedience-slash-disobedience category? In other words, does God command us to be involved in politics and we're disobedient if we don't? Well, if these questions are of interest to you, then you'll be happy to know that we'll be exploring these issues off and on over the next year or so. It's important for you to understand that we're not going to fully agree on this. We're not going to agree on eschatology in times, which is what we're going to be discussing, fully with one another. But that's okay. One of the reasons we will disagree is that it, it, it comes down to the ways that we interpret scripture and you need to understand when we're thinking about last things which we're going to be in Daniel and Revelation along the way um, we're talking about secondary and even tertiary issues these are not matters of first importance although we often treat them at the very highest levels. The doctrines of central importance to the Christian faith, such as the Trinity and the deity of Christ and the meaning of the death of Christ, as Jim led us at the table this morning, are of first importance. So is justification by faith. That's of first importance. Second level issues would include include modes of baptism and views about women in teaching roles uh, or servant roles of ministry, leadership roles in the church. Third-order issues would include eschatology or the doctrine of last things. As interesting as eschatology is, it's a third-level issue. Even though what we believe about end times is that third-tier issue, it's very important because how we think about Christ's return often determines the way that we live our lives and how we think for instance <clears throat> do you think we should be building the kingdom or is this something that God does and we are servants in his his work that he's doing on earth also uh, do you want to see the world become a better place or do you are you happy when it gets worse and worse because that means Jesus in return must be very near so these are important issues that we'll be dealing with. The next four weeks will constitute the first of several eschatological excursies. So, someone asked me the other night, Brad, are you going to be talking in English when you talk about these things? I think here's the answer, no. <laughs> now, I, I want to explain this, so let me explain it. You hear David and other ones, David Calvert, Dr. David Calvert and other ones talking about nerding out. This is my attempt to nerd out a little bit. Excursus is an academic term that can encompass a detailed discussion of an aspect of the text that you're studying. Or it can be a diversion from the text to cover a point that is somewhat related, although not specifically related. So, for instance, if you're studying Romans 7, where Paul says... I long to serve God, but i somehow I can't. There are terrible things that I'm doing. I don't want to do them, but somehow I end up doing and and excursus might cover that the topic now what is who is the flesh that Paul is talking about in my spirit, I serve the Lord in the flesh, I serve myself um i i I serve sin because of this part of me that just will not submit to God. Is that Paul's pre-Christian self or is it his post-Christian self? Is it a battle between the the flesh and the spirit as as Galatians 5 talks about or is it the old Paul? That would be an example of an excursus. So along the way in our study of Daniel and Revelation we're going to pause to go into deeper points of individual um, excuse me of interest in the study of eschatology and that can include the end of individual lives it can talk be referring to the end of the age or the world okay I won't use excursus anymore I promise <laughs> no. um, it can include the end of individual lives the end of the age or the end of the world and the nature of of the kingdom of God. For instance, this next four weeks, we're going to be talking about kingdoms, the kingdom of man or different kingdoms of man and the kingdom of God, plus we'll be thinking about the rapture and how we are to live expectantly in anticipation of Jesus' return. Surely somewhere in our study of Daniel and Revelation, we'll want to dip our toes into the teaching, Jesus' teaching about the destruction of the temple. And the final judgment at the end of the age in Matthew 24 and 25, topics like that. So, those will be called eschatological excurses. If that doesn't make sense, don't worry about it. We won't talk about this anymore, okay? This morning, we're going to be thinking about the trouble with earthly kingdoms our text is genesis 11 1 through 9 and it's time to get going it's our custom at grace to stand as the word of god is being read so if you would please stand for the reading of scripture i will be reading from the english standard version now the whole earth had one language and the same words just imagine And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face Of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you and be seated. So to set the stage for the story that is recounted in Genesis chapter 11, let's review the first 10 chapters of Genesis, beginning with Genesis 1 and 2. God's beautiful creation with humans as the crowning jewel of creation. This story never gets old. Then in Genesis 3, the fall of man, the punishment for sin, and the promise of redemption through a descendant of Adam and Eve. Even so, Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden. Now, here's a pattern you're going to see later. We're going to see it later when we get going in Genesis 11. You think God is kind of punishing Adam and Eve, and He is, in a sense, by driving them out of the garden to the east, but He's also being merciful because if they were to eat of the tree of life in that state of sin, then that wouldn't have been a good thing. Uh, Then, in chapter 3, Genesis 4, Cain, who was Eve's hope for the Redeemer, God promised In Genesis 3.15, there will be born someone from you, Eve, a man from you, who will crush the head of the serpent. He will strike the heel of your son, but he will crush the head of the serpent. And Eve is saying, saying, I've got a man from the Lord when Cain was born. She was thinking he was the man. It wasn't the case, though. In fact, Cain killed Abel, after which... He built the first city, and Lamech justifies his sin and consolidates political power. All that in Genesis chapter 4, so much more than that even. The same is true for chapter 5, where Seth is born to Adam and Eve, from whose line? Jesus. Jesus will come. Genealogies are important in Scripture for multiple reasons, particularly with the line of Christ. That's what's such a big deal about Melchizedek. We see him three times. We see him in Genesis, we see him in Psalm 110, and then we see him in Hebrews. Melchizedek was a priest, high priest, like Jesus, but Melchizedek is the only person in Genesis who had no genealogy, no ties to any human being. And then Psalm 110 says, the Messiah will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. (laughs) The the Messiah could only be from the line of Judah because he was king, he was prophet, but he couldn't be a priest because he was from the line of Levi. I mean, all priests were Levites, but there's this Melchizedek who has no genealogy. So, don't get too frustrated when you see genealogy. Skim through them. If you're reading through the Bible, that's okay. But understand how important they are. Then, in Genesis chapter 6 through 10, Noah extends his grace, or God (laughs) extends his grace to Noah, and saves his family from the destruction of the flood through the ark, and Noah's sons and wives begin repopulating the earth. Which leads us to Genesis 11, 1 through 9. The people seek to consolidate power in the building of a city. They seek to cast off God's restraints by making a name, <clears throat> a name for themselves and building a tower that reaches to the heavens. So, does all of this sound like The history of Genesis 1 through 11, or does it sound like the history of humanity? This is a big time yes, don't you think? I mean, we see these 11 chapters. We could almost stop with chapter 4. And all of human history is written in those chapters. By the time Cain murders Abel and builds a city, we've seen it all, but it keeps on going. Ever since we were driven out of the garden, we have been constructing our own kingdoms, both collectively and individually. At first glance, the people who gather on the plains of Shinar seem to be engaged in a sensible and humanitarian endeavor. Is it wrong to gather in cities and pursue personal success and national security? Well, no. And yes, depending on the motive, which might be more difficult to, to discern than one would expect, but God knows our hearts. So, let's think about the problem in the city known as Babel, and in so doing, we can think about and learn about ourselves. The following points are taken directly, directly from a book that I have referenced several times this year called Biblical Critical Theory by Christopher Watkin. Who does a masterful job of tying the story of scripture and biblical truth principles to modern day living. Don't let the title of this book throw you off. This is not about interpreting scripture through a cultural lens. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It's about interpreting culture through a biblical lens. Let's start with scripture And then see how we find the same marks in culture that were there from the very beginning and how we can respond to that and help people understand the the futility of building earthly kingdoms for themselves or with a a lot of other people together. So, I think you'll make the connections in these points, again, directly from Christopher Walken, beginning with... The first humans were commanded by God in Genesis 1.28 to fill the earth. But here, they want to build a city lest they be scattered over the face of the whole earth in direct violation of God's commands. And by the way, the insert in your bulletin is to keep, try to mitigate, Severe writer's cramp this morning, and also to keep from frustrating the note takers. You can have those. You can make little notes beside the points, but they're there so you don't have to write because we're not spending too much time on any one of these. So let me ask you, would you say that encouragement is coming from world leaders today to fill the earth? (laughs) How easy it is to allow worldly wisdom. And look, I understand all the problems of overpopulation. I get it. But how easy it is to start with the world's wisdom as our reference point, drowning out God's voice. Second, the people want to assert their own autonomous identity, captured in the language of so that we may make a name for ourselves. In biblical thinking, to name something is to have authority over it. God named all the elements of creation. Who named the animals? Adam. Does Adam have authority over animals? Does man man have authority over animals? Or do animals have authority over man? Once again, when animals who absolutely must be treated humanely, Scripture commands it, But when animals are treated as more important than humans, it's backwards. We're living in a day (laughs) where people are rejecting God's ways and making a name for themselves. Making a name for oneself might satisfy for a time. But we are, in the end, creatures. And only when we acknowledge our Creator and Redeemer and seek to make His name great will we ever find peace and fulfillment. I have these kinds of conversations. The Lord puts me in, in, in communication with people that never think about this. And I've never had anybody in these conversations. And we had some last week, Alice and I had a couple of them. Never say, hear people say, that's really stupid. How can you? And these are people who are woke to the core. Professors in, in secular universities. And they say, hmm. People are just not called to think about how life and reality really works. Third They want to make a name for themselves by building a tower that reaches to the heavens in diametric contrast to God's promise to Abraham that I will make your name great. Interesting, isn't it? They want to make a name for themselves, but God rejects that. And in the very next chapter, Abraham is told, I will make your name great in all the earth. Look, there are... There are things in Scripture that we think we understand all about, but over time you start to think, maybe that's even more than I thought. For instance, verses like James 4.10, Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. What does that mean? That He's going to build a tower and set me on it? it? Is it like in the next life? 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. What about all the beatitudes? Those who mourn will be comforted. Um, if, If we respond in the right way, God will take care of us. We don't have to constantly be looking out for ourselves. You know the old saying, if you don't look out for yourself, nobody else is going to. So you better look out for yourself. Now, God says, you just let me take care of that. You humble yourself. So much of his, so many of his ways are so helpful for us. When you think about the way man works and the way God works, when he says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. Why is that a good thing? Because we don't know how to exact vengeance in measured terms. We, we don't have any idea how to stop. It's like Fills and McCoys. You kill one of ours, we'll kill two of yours. That's just the way people operate. But God says, just let me take care of that. There's so many things. It doesn't mean to be passive, inactive, lazy in any way. But always in your mind and heart, be humble before the Lord and let Him take care of you. He will. Forth. In narrative terms, and this is really important, this is a pattern we see over and over, rather than playing a role in God's story, filling the earth and subduing it, these people want God to play a supporting role in their story. Look, believers and unbelievers alike are guilty of this, and before we know it, we're right there. We think we're about glorifying God, and then all of a sudden we realize, like, God, why why aren't you doing what I expected you to do? The more we grow in maturity as believers, though, the greater we understand the privilege it is to be given a meaningful role in God's story, in God's kingdom. Fifth. There may also be an echo in the "Come, let us," refrain of Genesis eleven of God's "Let us make," "Come, let us make," in Genesis one twenty-six. "Come, let us make," in Genesis eleven one. This suggests that the people are usurping a godlike role. <laughs> in the same way that it was a mercy of God to send Adam and Eve out of the garden. It was a mercy of God to confuse the language of these people, limiting the damage that could have been done had he not checked them. Have you made the connection yet? First thing Pastor David said when he, when, um, <clears throat> when he found out what the text was, he said, you think it'd be uh, too much to do, oh, for a ta- thousand tongues to sing? I'm like, no, it's perfect. It's perfect to sing it. Just think about that day when we gather around the throne and we're singing praises to God, possibly in all these different languages. Maybe he makes our language one then, or maybe we hear it in all those different tongues and we understand them all because we're all saying the same thing. Praise to the Lamb who was slain. Babel. The word means confusion it's the root of the hebrew word for babylon it's a symbol of human society that sets itself against god and found throughout scripture all the way to the late chapters of the book of revelation the problem from the garden of eden to the tower of babel to the kingdoms of babylon persia greece and rome all the way to the end of the end of the earth is the desire for autonomy or self-government without being subject to control by any other. So if I am autonomous, ain't nobody telling me what to do. I'm the master of my fate, the captain of my fate. I'm the one who's going to, make the decisions. But here's the problem. No earthly kingdom lasts. Not only does ultimate power in this life prove to be unsatisfying, but success often leads to softness and perversion and self-loathing. I wonder where America is on this scale. Earthly kingdoms almost always reflect our personal desire to make a name for ourselves and to work toward security, which in of itself is not a bad thing at all to have security, even national. it's It's so important. Thank God for the military personnel that we have in our church protecting our nation and keeping us free. I'm very thankful for that. But when we want to be autonomous, we find ourselves trying to cast off any restrictions that keep us from following our dreams or being who we, were, we think that we were made to be. It's not that we're irreligious. We want to be worthy of heaven, but we want to get there in our way. And we want God to say, yes, you are the man. You are the woman. You are the one. I've been looking for, come on in. We assume that our relationship with God can be reduced to a formula. If I can do enough good, if I can check enough boxes, then God will be obligated to allow me into His presence. It is, after all, simply another way of building my own personal tower to heaven. But the truth of Christianity is different from any other religion. We will all discover at some point, even it's at the end of this life, that we can never climb up to heaven. We can never build that tower high enough. Only when Jesus descended to earth did our eternal prospects change. One of the New Testament Names for Jesus, who is 100% God and 100% man, as Pastor David explained so beautifully last week. One of those names is the last Adam. Adam and Eve had only one restriction in the Garden of Eden. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In this one act of defiance in which they sought to be like God, like these people in Genesis 11 were doing, they chose death over life. Because of their sin, all who have descended from Adam and Eve have been born sinners who seek their own way. It's just natural for us. We champion freedom. We pursue autonomy, and we seek to make a name for ourselves to prove ourselves worthy Of heaven. Our sins, though, have separated us from God. And so our efforts, just like the people in Babel, are futile. Jesus, the second Adam, was the only one who could do anything about our sins. But he did not do it with a prideful heart and spirit. And look at me, I've come to fix things here. In humility, Jesus died as the perfect sacrifice in our place on a cruel, cruel Roman cross, defeating death and sin. And then three days later, when he rose from the death, he assured all of us, or from the dead, all, he assured all of us who will believe, repent of our sins and believe in him, that our bodies will one day rise. We lost two. Giants of the faith in the last two weeks. Jim Aycock and Jack Lucas. Their bodies were going to rise. Their will rise again. They are going to rise. When Jesus returns, how do we know the promise has already been made? The trouble with earthly kingdoms is that they fade and perish. The beauty of God's kingdom in which Jesus reigns is that it is eternal. The contrast could not be starker. When Adam and Eve sinned and their eyes were open, they found themselves naked and ashamed. When Jesus was lifted up on the cross, he died naked, bearing our shame, suffering the penalty for our sins. When Cain murdered Abel in cold blood, Abel's blood cried out from the ground for vengeance. When Jesus died on the cross, his blood was spilled on the ground and it cried out for forgiveness for those who will repent. And confess Jesus as Lord. And the people of Babel built a tower to the heavens. They sought to establish their independence and to make a name for themselves that freed them from God's control. When Jesus was lifted up on the cross toward the heavens, he humbly obeyed the will of his Father so that our names might be written in the Lamb's book of life. We are always at our best when we give God the control of our lives. Our quest for autonomy, for self-rule, deceives us into thinking that we're someone we are not. And our self-deception can harm many people along the way. Jesus Came not to be served, but as he told us in Mark 10, 10, to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Alice and I watched the memorial service for Tim Keller this past week, and Sam Alberry preached, and he preached from that text The Son of Man came not to serve, but not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He talked about how the mark of Authority and success in this world is often how many people serve you. That wasn't Jesus. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life. Now, when he came, when he said he came to give his life as a ransom for many, that says something about us. We need rescuing. We need ransoming. But this God who serves. Sam said, is that the God you don't believe in by chance, some chance, the God who wants you to serve Him and makes your life miserable if you don't do everything He expects you to do? He said, that's not who God is. God, Jesus, God in the flesh came to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus also told us that all who will be his disciples must deny themselves, take up their crosses daily, and follow him. The way up is down. I've asked Jim McLaughlin, who led at the table this morning, if he would come and give his testimony about what he learned about his own understanding and accomplishments and how it's not about that, but it's about Jesus.
1: The first time I ever gave my testimony publicly was at Highland Hills Baptist Church in Macon, Georgia. And it was Baptist Men's Day. And a man named Lon Day, Day's Ends, had the primary message. And I'm reminded of what happened that day, today. I was to give my testimony after Lon Day spoke, and at the Baptist Church, if you don't get out by noon, things are in bad condition. He spoke to noon, and then I had to give my testimony, and our preacher at that time was Jim Bruner, a man of God, preached the gospel well, and as I walked up to the platform to give my testimony that day, Jim said. Take your time. They want to hear it. So I hope we don't run over too much, but I do have a testimony. And I could talk for hours, obviously. But my background is not pleasant, uh, but it's meaningful. Uh, My parents were divorced when I was very young. My dad was married, not sure, five or six times my mom only four times, she was the stable one in the, in the family. My paternal grandparents actually raised me until I was in the eighth grade, and then my mom remarried and using was in the Air Force, we moved all over the country, El Paso, Texas, Chandler, Arizona, Waco, Texas, finally back to Albany, Georgia, my hometown, where I finished the last half of my senior year. Uh, Went to college, Georgia Southern College. Uh, My grandparents did send me to the Methodist church right down the street because it was closest one. They didn't go, but they sent me down. And I heard the gospel. Then I went to college, and the first two years, I really had a good time. Uh, Drank a lot, chased a lot of women, caught a couple. Uh, I was having a good time. Almost flunked out, of course. But, you know, well, how important was it anyway? Uh, as Alan Jackson was saying, never had a plan, just living for the minute. End of my sophomore year, I met a special girl. Her name was Diane. I married that girl. We both taught at public schools. When we got married, Diane had been, uh, I wouldn't call raised in a Christian home, but she had been raised in a home where it was important for the kids to go to church. Not the parents necessarily, but for the kids to go to church. So we got married. She said, We got to go to church. I said, Okay. So we started going to church. I graduated and we both taught public school. And one night, a New Year's Eve party, partying, having a good time. Make a long story short, I decided I was going to take the. Law school aptitude test to see if I could get in law school. It's sort of funny, actually, how it happened, but time does not permit. Uh, Well, I got in law school and did okay in law school. And uh, passed the bar exam, became a lawyer. Practiced law for eight and a half years in Macon, Georgia. Brad's talking this morning about building a kingdom. That's what I was doing. I was building a kingdom with um, a classmate of mine in law school, and I started our own law firm. Uh, after we had both practiced with larger firms, And we were doing quite well. We were doing real well. We were making a lot of money. We were happy. We were partying. We were having fun. Life was good. No significant church life, though. Although while I was in law school, Diane and I lived in a little apartment below Mrs. Sherwood's house, down in the basement. Two bedrooms and a living room about a very small, and a kitchen smaller. And one day, somebody knocked on the door. And it was a man named Jim Bruner, pastor, preacher. And he had with him a man named Dr. Shirley, chair of the deacons of the local Baptist church right down the street, inviting us to come. We never had been. I don't know how they found out about us. And they left, and we asked questions, what I found out was that church was the rich folks' church. It's where all the doctors and the lawyers and the big businessmen went. And I looked at Diane and said, we got to go there. I might get a job when I graduate from law school. It's Funny how God can use your sin to get you where he wants you to be. Uh, so that happened. I ta- Listen, before I was saved, I taught a college Sunday school class. Quite well, by the way. The kids loved it. I was teaching the scripture, uh, but wasn't saved. Started our law firm, and a girl named Dorothy Adams came, and she started putting tracks on my desk. Dorothy, she was an evangelist, and she got into conversations with me. We talked about theological things. She had some theological depth. Then we hired another classmate to come join our firm, John Carey. And lo and behold, John Kerry, who was not a Christian in law school, had become one. And he started witnessing to me. Then there was a couple named Skeet and Linda McCurdy. Skeet, good southern name. Skeet was an oral surgeon. He was at that Ridge church. And uh, Skeet and Linda were observant. And they were checking out the fig tree. And there were no figs. That was me. And that was Diane. And they invited us to a couple's Bible study. And we went to that couple's Bible study and I looked around. There were about about 10, 11 couples there that night. And one of the well, two of the guys, Wesley Walker was one. And Paul Cable was the other one. I said, what are Wesley and Paul doing here? I mean, I had had good times with them before. I want to find out what had happened. They'd gotten saved. And that night... They were studying John. they have been on John a year, and they finished John that night. And they they rotated the teaching around to the men. And they said they are going to start Romans next week. Well, that night, as they were doing the Bible study, man, people were flipping through the Bible. Well, look over there at so-and-so. Look over at so-and-so. And And I'm having a look at the table of contents, you know. I don't know what page this is on. Uh, These people really know the Bible. It was embarrassing. I didn't know anything. And why was it embarrassing? Because I'm a prideful man. Anybody else got pride problems? And God took my sin of pride. And that night, I decided the next day, I was going to walk across the street from my law office and go into the Presbyterian church, which had a big bookstore. And I was going to buy a book, a commentary on the book of Romans. Because I was not going to be stupid at the next Weekly Bible study. And the lady in there said, you got a good commentary on Romans? She said, we got several. I said, what's the best one you got? She said, Hodge, this is the book. And she said, it's real deep. I said, I want it. I want the best one. So that night I went home, started studying Romans. Got to Romans one sixteen. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek and this book he has a lot to say about one of the words in that verse the word believe and I started reading that and I said well I believe and here's what I believe I believe Jesus was the Son of God. I believe that Jesus came, that he performed miracles, that he was crucified, that he was raised from the dead, and he ascended into heaven, and he's sitting at the right hand of God, advocating for all believers. I believed that. So I said, well, I'm okay. I'm okay. But then I started reading more about Hodge. And I wasn't okay because I had intellectual knowledge but no heart knowledge. There were 18 inches separating me from heaven and hell. I knew it here, didn't have it here. And when that truth came to me, let me read what Hodge says. I can't read it all because it's several pages, but he said that faith, therefore, which is connected with. Salvation includes knowledge. I was okay. That is a perception of the truth and its qualities. Assent, okay, or the persuasion of the truth of the object of faith. And trust or reliance on. I said, well, do I, do I rely on Jesus for everything? You know, at Jim Cox funeral, Ricky said, Jim was all in. And I was not all in. So that night in my living room, in the finest house Diane and I have ever owned or ever will own, I saw the truth. The Holy Spirit turned the light on for me, and I understood that I had only believed intellectually, I had not believed. Deeply in, in reliance and in trust in Jesus. And I fell on the floor. And I realized for the first time in my life, you know, I was a pretty good guy, I thought. I mean, I'd help you. I practiced law because I wanted to help people. And I, I was happy. I had a good job. I liked it. I enjoyed it. But that night I realized, not only had I sinned against my wife, other people I had sinned against God and I fell on the floor was it emotional? yeah but more importantly it was the Holy Spirit convicting me and showing me the truth and I saw it for the first time and I gave my testimony at Highland Hills Baptist Church that Baptist Men's Day and I never will forget four couples who were friends of ours all fairly young. I was thirty-three years old. They were younger than I was, actually. Came down. You know how the Baptist church has got to come down. You can't be saved without coming down. <laughs> and four couples came down, and they had all grown up in that church. They've been in that church their entire lives, and and professed faith that day. And I talked, "What's going on?" And they said, "We well, never heard it from a layperson before. We don't heard a preacher say it." He's paid to say it. Interesting. Interesting. So, pride was the problem, and God used it to save me. So, my point is, do you, oh, here's, almost forgot. Almost through. Last point. After that happened, those four couples came down. I asked. We had we had Jim and Ann Bruner, our preacher and his wife, over to our house for supper that next week. And I asked Jim Bruner, Jim, how many people out there are saved? We had so four couples came down. We thought they were. He said, I don't know how many of them are saved, but I'm guessing 10 to 15 percent of them. Isn't that something? Well, it was the rich folks' church, you understand. And they were independent folks. They were autonomous people. So I have a real heart, a real burden for for people who play the game of church. And in the South, historically, that's been a deal. We play the game. We go to church. Do we know Jesus? Do we really know Jesus? Are we dependent on Jesus? Are we all in like Jim Aycock was? And I guarantee you, Jim's all in today. who with him. I miss him. Miss him and Jack. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. I thank you for saving me. And I pray that you'll save anybody here today that needs it.